Hi, my name's Steve Dawson, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues Podcast. Did you grow up in Vancouver? I did, yeah. Uh, more or less. I spent a few years in Toronto when I was little, and, uh, and then Vancouver was the, the bulk of my childhood. How, how did music come into your life? Um, well, it was mostly self-discovery, I guess. I didn't really come from a musical family. Um, my parents, neither of them are particularly musical, and but they sort of encouraged me and my brother to play instruments here and there and take lessons and stuff like that. So he played the piano. I started taking guitar lessons probably when I was 13 or something. And um, I guess I developed a, pretty quickly like a... Uh, an interest in in all things guitar, and I realized that uh, lessons weren't really my bag. <laughs> I, I I don't know, like I, I mostly just couldn't find a teacher that was teaching what I wanted to learn. So I ended up, you know, just sort of learning how to play by ear, and and that's what I did mostly. Was I got really into guitar, and I, and I basically taught myself, which at the time it was a little more challenging than it is now. I think because there's there was no YouTube or Right. anything like that so it was a lot of like slowing down records and and uh you know a few vhs tapes worn out things like that <laughs> so the things that you wanted to learn that they weren't teaching you what what kind of things were they i mean at when i was starting it was like you know i wanted to play beatles and rolling stones and hendrix songs and my mom didn't really know what else to do so she just stuck you know put me in the royal conservatory uh in i guess vancouver and then toronto and there was a you know i just took a, a weekly lesson from from guys there and they were great players and stuff but mostly like classical guys and yeah i i, I played clarinet in school so i knew i could kind of read music and so that was interesting like i kind of learned to read guitar i guess through some of those guys but but they'd ask me what i wanted to learn and i'd say like babe i'm gonna leave you by led zeppelin or something and they just had no clue what i was even talking about <laughs> uh, so did you did you follow the classical path at all no i didn't i i just had no patience for it and no interest in it so you know i wouldn't really practice and i'd show up the next week and just be a delinquent and <laughs> um i did ha eventually i landed with a teacher in vancouver and she, her name was Carolyn something or other, Carolyn Cordson, I think. And she, uh, she knew some like pop and rock stuff and she'd sort of teach me that, but she was like a real dyed in the wool folky. And so she, she didn't know how to play like lead guitar at all, which is really what I wanted to learn. <laughs> but I guess I probably didn't really know how to articulate that because I didn't even know, right. I didn't even know what that meant really. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And then how did, how did, like, how did you follow this deeper from, from that kid who wanted to learn how to play Led Zeppelin to a musician? I mean, I'm still, I, I still basically just want to play Led Zeppelin songs all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, but I mean, yeah, like I, I got into... All that era of stuff was what I was into. I was into, you know, guitar-based music. And and when I was growing up in the 
eighties and stuff, guitar music wasn't particularly popular anymore or, you know, if it was, it was sort of not the kind of guitar stuff that I was interested in. So I was more interested in, you know, sixties and seventies recordings and stuff like that. And those guys were, you know, the stones and Clapton and Hendrix and the who, all those guys were good at talking about all the people that influenced them. So, um, it's sort of that same old story of, of just, um, you know, taking the dive and going from the Rolling Stones to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. And then I just kept going with that. And so that led me to acoustic music through Mississippi John Hurt and Sun House and Skip James. Um, you know, I got into pretty heavily into Ry Cooter when I was still pretty young. And, and he led me into um, uh, all kinds of interesting wild musical adventures and um then my uncle bought me a slide because he he understood that i liked the almond brothers and the rolling stones probably i remember him buying me a slide i was probably 12 or 13 yeah maybe 13 14 something like that and i didn't know what it was like i didn't even know what it was like i i'd heard it of course on you know stones albums and stuff but i didn't know i didn't have a clue how you used it even and I remember he bought it for, he bought me a slide and I just had to kind of like fake it. I didn't even know where to put it. <laughs> it's like, it's just like a, a socket wrench is what it looks like. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I think for a while I just thought you held it in your hand and, and I, yeah, I didn't know. So that was like a, once I kind of figured that out, that was, that sort of opened the floodgates because slide guitar has been just a, it's been a big part of my life ever, ever since then. And that's as early as I can trace it back to for me was getting it from my uncle because he knew that I'd be into it but um it took me a while to to get the ball rolling you know so so how did you figure it out I don't know I remember going to jams with my friends and stuff and just like making horrific noises with it because (laughs) I didn't know what to do and and particularly like I didn't know anything about open tunings or doing anything with the guitar that would make it make any sense and so it was just kind of a noisemaker for for a while because I had bands that you know friends in high school well I probably wasn't even in high school at this point but I had friends in bands and we would get together and jam and so the the, the slide would come with me I was fascinated by it I just didn't understand I couldn't put two and two together between what it was in my hand and what what I was hearing on the records and then um you know, it was probably, I, I don't really remember, but it was probably a guitar magazine or something where I read something about maybe Keith Richards or Ry Cooter or somebody tuning their guitar and maybe probably like explaining what the tuning was. And then I tried that and, and immediately I could hear, oh, like that's, that's where this is coming from. And so that was really interesting to me. And then to like find out that you know, Book of White and Skip James and all these people played guitar in these tunings, then then I could put those records on and, and I could understand what they were doing more. So how easy was it to get into the Vancouver music scene as this kid who's kind of getting into the blues? Um, well, I mean, right out of high school, I moved to Boston to go to music school there. And uh, so I was I was in Boston for two and a half years or something like that, three years, and then came back to Vancouver and and a, a bunch of my friends that I'd been playing with in high school were starting to play around Vancouver, 
And you know, at the time, Vancouver was pretty happening for live music for for young bands. Like there was all these bands like the Harvesters and the Grammas Brothers and uh, man, I don't even I can't even remember what they all were, but people playing music and stuff like this and and there was a real scene of local bands being able to pack clubs in all around Vancouver. And and I'm not talking like crappy little bars. I'm talking about the Commodore and stuff like that. So, you know, we, I'd go and see the Grammas brothers sell out two nights at the Commodore. And that's like, there's no way, a, a, a basically a, an, an independent unknown band could even get a gig at, at the Commodore anymore, let alone pack two nights. Mm-hmm. And those are like, two 90s nights where they packed three times as many people as the capacity <laughs> held. Uh, you know, so there was places to play all over the place. And when I started, so this is like in the 90s, uh, we could play two, three times a week around Vancouver and not fry ourselves out. Eventually we did get really sick of it. And clubs, at right around then, you know, that's when the live music thing changed a lot and some of those a lot of those clubs shut down in the in the late 90s and that's when things like really shifted but for a while there when i was starting out there was so many gigs it was ridiculous and you could get you could get a following happening and yeah you could play 3 4 5 nights a week around town playing original rock music and uh it was great and then at the same time i was i was going to the yale a lot and that's where i met a lot of um people that were more my age that were playing blues. So, you know, guys like Todd Taylor and uh, Mark Peterson were there and a bunch of people that I still know that still play guitar and uh, some live in Vancouver, some don't, but like really good players. And they, all those people were into blues. And, and of course, the, the there was that whole older generation, like with um, Jack Lavin was sort of the host and, and uh, Tony Robertson was a guitar player there who they would be the host of the jam and they were really encouraging to the, to the young pups that were coming out and hanging out. And they thought it was cool that there was young people coming to play blues. I don't know how good we were. I remember Todd Taylor is one guy that was like way better than everybody else basically at, at our age. And so that was, it was cool. Like it was cool that we could hang out with these guys that were, you know, probably they were probably in their forties or something at that point. I don't know. Um, but they, you know, they'd kind of been on the road forever and they were kind of hanging out in Vancouver and just doing their, their thing. And, and then having this new generation of people coming up and, and for us having a place to go, I think there was even two jams a week at the Yale. So that was, that was a big one for me. The Yale was, was a cool place to go pretty much every weekend and sort of hang out and meet people. Did you have a plan of any sort? Did, did you have an idea of what you were doing and what you were hoping to achieve? No, not really. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to to make a go of it as a musician, but I had no idea what that meant or how to do it. I don't think anybody does ever. <laughs> I think you're right. I don't know. I mean, there may be there may be there may be plans that work sometimes, but for the most part, anyone that I know that's just been a, especially people that are like players as opposed to, you know. I guess I guess I see a different side of it here in Nashville where there's like big career plans laid out for people. Um, but in Vancouver and and in my life, nobody really had a plan. You know, it was like some people were getting lucky. Some people were getting unlucky. Uh, but that's all it was. And then and some people were really good at what they did and they stuck to it and they got to be 
to the point where they could uh, with you know withstand a career in the in the industry in whatever way that was. But um, I don't think anyone really had a game plan for it. <laughs> okay, but but you went to Boston for, for for music. So what was the thinking there, and what were you? What did you go there for, and what did you hope to get out of that when you when you finished schooling in Boston? I guess again, I didn't really know. It was a way for me to be in music and and not have to um, be. I, I guess I didn't really see myself being in local bands the whole, the whole time, and it was like the only avenue I could see of. It, it opened up to me and it was like this possibility. And I was actually getting pretty into jazz guitar at the time. So I'd been pretty, I got pretty deep into like West Montgomery and kind of the classic guitar jazz kind of stuff. And I, I just saw that as a possibility of, you know, it was appealing to me to go and study jazz and maybe get really good at that. I had no idea what that meant. And I mean, talk about, talk about bad career choice. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, I quickly, after I got there, found like all these other avenues that I was way more interested in. And, and also I realized very quickly that in order to be a really good jazz musician, you had to basically dedicate your life to that. And there's no way that I was going to do that. Like I was just, I liked jazz. I even loved jazz to a certain extent. But there was no way I was going to not play slide guitar and bluegrass and these other things that I was getting into as well. And so I just kind of was like, you know what, forget it. I'm just never going to be, I could see these people that were like phenomenal because they dedicated their life to it. And I just wasn't going to do that. Was this the Berkeley School of Music? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you had to be pretty decent to get in, I would presume. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I was pretty good at that point. You know, I'd played, I was playing clubs and stuff when I was 15, 16. So I was, yeah, I was pretty good, I guess, you know, and um, I was interested in learning and I could read music and that helped. And, um, you know, I was, I'd already been making some records and things like that. So I had a few things under my belt, but I was far from being an accomplished musician in any way. But uh yeah, I mean, I was good enough to get in and good enough to stick around. And I kind of got to the point there where it was like, I if I was going to stay on for the full thing, I'd end up with a music degree. And I, I knew enough to know that I didn't want a music degree because <laughs> that doesn't really help right. you as a musician, unless you're going to teach at university, which I didn't want to do. So having a degree really, and I was right, like I've never been asked if I have any musical education credentials in my in my career so that's that's true you know if if I wanted to get a teaching gig obviously that would change but um for now like nobody's ever asked me before I make a record or before I play on somebody's tour hey how many years of college do you you have (laughs) so you come back to Vancouver and you start playing you said that the 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 musical landscape kind of changed or the the opera Mm-hmm. opportunities that were available to you kind of changed a little bit at mm-hmm. that point did was there is that why you might have gotten into producing or does that come much later uh it was a little later probably you know there was a there was a time where the club started shutting down you know it was it was 
if you look at the history of live music in Gastown in particular, and you, I don't know what the years are exactly where things started going off the rails there, but there was a while there where there was like probably eight pretty awesome music venues all based around those four blocks of of downtown Vancouver and we I would play those all the time and then they started shutting down and whenever that was 97 98 99 it started changing and and at that point I was playing with Jesse Zubot a lot in a in a rock band and we saw the writing on the wall as far as like we can't do this like we have to go on we have to go on the road basically so we started going on the road and and all that and then we kind of got a taste for festivals folk festivals at that point because the band that we were in you know jesse was playing fiddle and i was playing slide guitar and so we were pretty unique and we started getting booked at a couple of folk festivals and we realized that that was kind of a more viable path for us doing possibly doing acoustic music and so we started doing more acoustic music and and instrumental acoustic music in particular and um we had no aspirations for it at all but um (laughs) that that sort of took off for us in a way i guess and and did well you know and we got booked all over the place with um both with touring and with festivals in particular you know we did all the festivals and okay, so how how difficult is it to say, wow, this, the local scene's not really happening, or the opportunities are shutting down? Let's take it on the road, because like, I can't imagine that being an easy transition, and and it, I presume it's quite risky as well. Yeah, but when you're young, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, True. like we were we were in our early twenties, so we'd go out on tour. And we didn't really care that much about if we made any money or whatever, as long as, you know, we slept in vans and we slept on people's floors and we, we didn't care. Like I would never do that now, obviously. And, and I don't even think you could really pull that off anymore. Maybe you could, I don't know. I don't really know. Um, but, but for us, we were young enough, I think where we could do it and not, not worry about the money and the lifestyle or whatever. We just didn't care. But the but the album did well. I have my copy right here. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's the that's so we made three, and that's the third of the three. The first one's called Strang, and that came out in '98. So we we were probably making it in '97, right around this time where everything was shifting in in Vancouver, and uh, so so we made Strang, and that one. Yeah, I mean, that's when we started getting booked at festivals and it got nominated for a Juno Award and, you know, things that were a notch above what we'd been doing before. And it was way more appealing and we made a bit more money. I mean, we never made a ton of money doing it or anything, but we made, suddenly it was like a viable thing that kind of made sense um, as opposed to just tearing around in a van playing rock clubs everywhere. (laughs) Right. But so so when this opportunity, when things start to happen and you're getting recognition through Junos or whatever, um, what what goes through your mind? Like, what's your thinking at that point? This is this is the way we want to go. This is great. What what goes through your mind? It was never that simple, really. Jesse and I always had very differing opinions of where to go musically and things like that, which was part of what made it cool. I think was that that we never really had a 
uh, a focused idea musically of what we were going to do. It was always like he was sort of pulling one direction. I was pulling it another direction and we'd kind of meet in the middle somewhere and it just worked well for that, for what we were doing musically. It was just weird enough to catch people's attention and still though, like there was no planning with like where the career was going to go or anything. Um, you know, it was all just, Oh, well that person's going to pay us this much to go and play a gig. Let's go play that gig or that festival's going to pay us. Let's go to the festival. But we were, you know, we, we'd have agents. I remember at the time there was, there was people sort of like hitting us up because they wanted to represent us to book us. And they wanted to know what our plan was too. And we would just be like, I, I, I don't know. And, and Jesse would have other, get other projects going on more than I did. Um, but I started having other projects going on and people started asking me to produce records. And so we'd have like, we weren't dedicated to that project. All of a sudden we were doing other stuff too. And that was always a problem for the agents who wanted, who wanted us to be available 365 days a year to go on tour. So we were getting picked up by agents and dropped by agents at the same time because they couldn't handle us because we'd be like, yeah, we don't want to do that tour because I got a gig making a record in Vancouver and Jesse's doing some crazy thing that, that was cool for him. And, and we just didn't have the open calendars and we'd, we'd even cancel stuff. We'd be like, well, that tour we were going to do, we're not going to do that tour. <laughs> and I think in hindsight, it was good because we would have just like kept going nonstop, which for a while is sort of what we were doing. But I think we were both interested enough in other doing other things, both musically and like career wise to not just get roped into doing that one thing over and over again. It definitely ticked a lot of people off, but um, I think it was good in the long run. So when people started asking you to be a producer or produce their albums, how did that happen? What is it, what is it about you that people came to you and asked for that? Well, the first person that ever did was Jenny Whiteley. Um, and, she, you know, it's all, it, it's still the same now. It's like, there's no way to do it aside from personal connections. So um, the Whiteleys, there's Jenny and Dan are brothers and they're in Toronto. I'm sure you know those guys and they're both phenomenal musicians. And we just started, Jesse and I started going to Toronto and we kind of fell in with that crowd. There was like the Whiteleys and um, Mark Roy on was playing guitar. He was like 12 years old or 13 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. I remember Dan, Dan Whiteley was like phone the school that Mark Roy was going to and be like, uh, Mark, this is Mark's uncle. He's, he's got, uh, there's a family issue. I got to come get him. And he'd drive to the school and pick Mark, this like Mark, who's like 13 and pick him up so he could come and play bluegrass with us all day. So that, you know, that was going on and like Andrew Collins and, that's where we met Andrew Downing who played with us as well. And we played in his band because uh, Andrew Downing was going out with Jenny Whiteley at the time and all this crazy stuff. And they were all living in this house over on Roncesvalles. And uh, so we kind of were, we wanted to go to Toronto all the time just to hang out with those guys. Cause they were, there wasn't anyone like that in Vancouver. Definitely. Like there was no bluegrass scene going on in Vancouver at all, except for John Reichman lived there, but he wasn't really, you know, he was older than us and we didn't really, he was just like this weird God to us. Like we didn't think of him as a peer. He was just a, a guy that used to play with Tony Rice. And we were like, Whoa. Um, 
but these guys who are also just amazing, just as amazing, you know, musically, but they were our age and they were hanging out and playing until five in the morning. And that was appealing to us. And so we'd try and go to Toronto as much as we could just to hang out with those guys. And uh, just so through that, just the hanging out, Jenny, for whatever reason, Jenny asked me to produce a record for her. And so I produced her record hope town because her band was called heartbreak hill at the time that was her and dan and and some other folks and they were breaking up and jenny wanted to do a solo record she'd already done one i guess so this was maybe her second one so i produced it and i kind of figured it out on the fly like i'd made a few records so i knew what a producer did but i didn't really know what i was doing but (laughs) it's it's also not rocket science like it's partly it's partly musical it's partly philosophical it's partly being a referee it's partly um balancing things it's partly um working within a budget like things that i was good at and so i i i took to it and and i was like it was interesting to me and i got to work in the studio which to me was way more interesting than being on the road so all those things sort of like that those were all appealing to me and so then that album did pretty well for Jenny, like it won a Juno as well and stuff. So then some other people asked me to make records. And um, I, I presume that some, if you get a Juno or you produce a Juno winning album, then all of a sudden you get calls. Yeah, you know, sort of. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure if it was like a Michael Buble record or something, it would, yeah, maybe. But, but you know, when you're talking about blues and roots and traditional and jazz and all that, all those kind of mu- the all the music that's considered not commercial you know it's like yeah i was getting more more calls than i was before but i was getting zero calls before and <laughs> now i was getting five calls so it's not like the floodgates open but the but there was work yeah and there was people wanting to do it and again i didn't really care about how much money i made or anything because i was young and i just didn't really think about that i just thought like hey if somebody wants me to go into the studio with them and they've got enough money to afford it then great and so okay that you know that makes me wonder at what point maybe you haven't but was there a point where you started to think about money and not not just be about money but where money became something you had to consider um I mean, not well, it just sort of as life progresses, you know, and, and suddenly you have a mortgage and a car lease or, a, yeah. a, or you own, own a car. And, and then I had a daughter and then, you know, things like that. And then suddenly you have to be a responsible a- adult. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was just a point where I guess I had to become a more responsible adult and think about saying, no to things that weren't going to make any money and um you know just yeah so you know a few years later when when those sort of things started happening and that's just like part of going through life and then suddenly you, you know you have to probably at that point it would have been like well i would have kept going or i would have maybe thought about doing something else entirely because i wasn't gonna just play at the yale all the time right so uh i had to figure out something and the the producing thing i didn't have to work too hard at getting the work it just sort of came 
um, for a while there, you know, and I mean, it's slower now, like it's harder now than it was 15 years ago, honestly. But I mean, now because of the pandemic, it has nothing to do with that. Well, the pandemic made me shift how I work because I couldn't work the way that I was used to working at all. So I had to like completely reinvent that. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, just like that combined with just the industry changing and streaming and all that stuff where suddenly making a record isn't really like a money making venture for an artist anymore. And so when that started happening, then things really start shifting. So it, it always makes me wonder, I, I understand that artists, musicians do this because they love making music and they create but when the industry is the way it is, when it doesn't necessarily make sense to spend a lot of money to record an, an album because it's hard to make back that money, um, how do you navigate that? Or what, you know, when somebody comes to you as an artist and says, I want you to produce my album, you must kind of think about what, what the world is like and, and try to figure out mm -hmm. what makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always made records... Um, I mean, some people think I charge a lot and some people think that I charge very little, like it's all relative, right? Like if you compare the kinds of records that I make to, um, you know, some the Eagles, are, yeah, or not even the Eagles, just like, I mean, the Eagles are like, forget it. But like, you know, uh, an artist that's making a, uh, a pop record, I make cheap records, like really cheap, but for somebody that's you know, a, a first timer or, or just making a, a record that they're, you know, anticipating selling 300 copies of, then yeah, it's expensive. Um, so immediately I'm sort of out of the running for that kind of thing, which is fine. Cause those aren't the, like, I don't want to be making records for so cheap that I can't afford to do it. Right. So, but yeah, I have to, I always have, I always wonder if I'm if I'm needing to shift things and I am, I always shift around how things work. And with the pandemic, we started doing remote recording and, um, you know, I try to accommodate people basically if somebody, especially if somebody comes to me and I really like the, their music and I want to make it work, then, you know, I'll find, usually I'll try and find like two or three scenarios for them where it's like, here's the cheapest scenario where I can actually work but we have to cut a lot of corners and then here's another scenario that's a bit better. And then here's like the perfect scenario. And so usually when people are, I find when they're presented with a few different options like that, there's, there's going to be something that works for them. And, you know, if, if, if they just can't af afford me or the way that I work, then they're going to have to go somewhere else. And that's fine too. Um, you said in the beginning, you kind of knew what producing was because you did you produce your own records. But at what point did you become really comfortable in the role of a producer? At what point did you think, yeah, I'm pretty good at this? I was pretty comfortable right away. Like I, I, you know, even though I didn't really know, I guess what I didn't know was like the technical side of things. I didn't know anything about equipment or microphones or preamps or compressors or any of that stuff. And all those things I learned about just by working in the studios and watching people and and same with mixing like I I didn't mix anything until I'd already made 
50 records. And at that point I'd watched so many people do it. And I was always just like reaching over, just like, if I just get, <laughs> let me get my hands on that, you know, and I'll, I'll do it. Cause I know what I want. So eventually I just started, I started engineering and I started mixing. And I think now like you have to have that skill set in this climate. You can't, you know, there's very few people that are just a producer in the old school sense of the term, you know, like in the George Martin or the, or the, I don't know. I mean, Lee Townsend's another guy, like we worked with him on that chicken scratch record and he doesn't touch a piece of gear the entire time. Well, there's very few people like that anymore because you can't, most people can't afford it. Like they can't afford a guy to come in and not have his hands on the stuff because that means they have to hire somebody else to have their hands on the stuff. So, you know, it's unfortunate because that's kind of a cool job. You know, um, Joe Henry is one of the last guys that I think kind of does that or T-Bone Burnett, like those two guys, uh, you know, they're working at a level where there, there is a lot of money to be made making records. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy for them necessarily but um but they don't really touch anything you know as far as gear or or instruments joe might play guitar a little bit of guitar on something but but for the most part they are an old school producer which i think is a really interesting job and it's kind of a dying breed and that's what i bring to the table is like i produce but i also play and i actually like playing while i'm producing because it's sort of like ties in my brain in a, in a, in a, in a way that makes me feel really engaged rather than sitting behind a piece of glass, watching it happen. Um, so, uh, but then I also have the, the technical know-how now to know how to run the studio and run the equipment and set it up. And I have equipment too. Like I have enough gear now that I've built up over the years that I can make a whole record at my place. So that, that immediately opens up a whole possibility where as before, you know, in the early days, I didn't have the, those options because I didn't have any equipment. I didn't know how to use the equipment and all that stuff was expensive. And so now I can sort of offer that as a, as a package of what I offer as a producer, which is, I, th I feel like it's something you have to be able to do more these days just be, to fit in people's budgets. But, but I also presume that when people come to you, they probably want you to, contribute your musical knowledge your your playing yeah for the yeah for the most part and um yeah i would say yeah absolutely um the odd time where it happens where that's not wanted um i kind of struggle with that like i i i i feel handcuffed in a way so when i saw you when we worked together on that TV show with the Sojourners. You were their, I presume, I think you were their producer as well, but you also yeah. their side man, or you were one yeah. of the musicians. And and you've had a lot of experience touring with other people. Yeah. Um, so you have this role of being a producer, being an artist, being a side man. Yeah. I presume it's still the same? Is that, do you have a preference over one, one over the other? Well, I mean, obviously the gigs have vanished over the last two years, but, but I sort of like, I sort of hit the road hard in the last, over the last five years. Uh, cause I started touring with birds of Chicago. Um, that's Alison Russell's old band. And so we, so they were busy and I joined their band about 
I mean, I've lost track of time now, but I feel, <laughs> like, that was, I feel like that was four or five, or I guess five years ago when I kind of joined their band. And then for pretty much like three years, it was like we were doing over 100 gigs a year. And then I started playing with Matt Anderson as well in 2019. So 2019 was like I was juggling between Birds of Chicago, who were doing 120 odd, 130 dates or something. And Matt was doing, you know, another 40 or something across Canada, 30, maybe whatever it was. And then some festivals. And there was some I remember some weekends where like I would play in Guelph at Hillside and then the driver would be there at the stage and I'd like run to the van and then he'd beeline me to the airport and I'd fly to Ottawa and get off the plane. And like the driver was there and I'd drive straight to the gig in Ottawa to play with Matt. And so there was like this time where I was juggling it and, and managing to, to do it. Cause I liked both gigs. I liked both artists and I liked all the music and I wanted to do it. Uh, so I'd imagine if COVID hadn't happened, I'd still be, you know, burning up the road a bit with, with any of those people or other people. Um, but when, when COVID started, I was out with birds of Chicago, we were opening for the wood brothers, um, and got sent home. We figured we'd have three weeks off and be back at it. And then two years later, everything's changed. Yeah. But you've, you've, it seems like you've managed to keep yourself quite busy over the last couple of years. Actually, I, I, yeah. Um, I, I do want to ask before then, um, at one point you moved to Nashville. Was that yeah. necessary as a producer? Was it necessary as an artist? Or was it necessary for no. a completely different reason? It wasn't necessary. I just wanted to make a change and felt like if I didn't do it then, I would just never do it. And I wanted to go somewhere interesting where I didn't really know people. And I wanted to go somewhere where music was important. And I was f starting to feel like Vancouver just was trying to get rid of all the artists and musicians and everyone was feeling squeezed out of the, t out of the city. And I just didn't want to be around that anymore. It was, it was frustrating and, and it didn't feel very good. And so I wanted to leave and, um, we almost moved to Toronto. Um, we looked around a lot and we're really thinking hard about moving to Toronto and then, but I knew a lot of people in Toronto and I just felt like it would be, a similar kind of situation that I was in in Vancouver. And so we ended up going to Nashville where I barely knew anybody. And, um, that was it. We just, we just moved here. Okay. And so how difficult is that to not know a lot of people? I'm, I'm, I presume you probably know a few musicians or, or knew yeah, a few musicians, but yeah, I knew a few people, yeah. but what's that like to kind of find yourself in Nashville not starting over, but basically reestablishing who you are. I was starting over. Like, I really feel like I started over. And it's hard when you're suddenly uh, older than, you know, when I was 21 and starting out in Vancouver or 18 or 19, I'd go out all, go out all night and like hang out and meet people. And that's, that's how it all happened. You right. know, it was all social, really. Like the musical thing happened, but it was also like who you were hanging out with was what led to almost everything. And it's the same here, but I just didn't have the time or the interest to be out until four in the morning every night, like hanging out, you know? So um, I met people in different ways here and it took longer. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, 
I obviously kept a lot of the Canadian things that I had going, you know, too. And then that led to different things. And, you know, all the, the, the two big projects that I was involved in up until the pandemic with Birds of Chicago and Matt Anderson, I doubt either of those would have happened if I wasn't in Nashville. Um, I don't know about the Matt one, but definitely Birds of Chicago was, it was because I was here and, um, yeah, there's been all kinds of stuff that's happened just because I'm here. But I wouldn't say it was essential that I did it. So, okay, but because you're there and because you're really good at what you do, because you're a great player, because you're personable, like what would you attribute to that, being able to make that connection in a in a relatively new city and, and trying to establish yourself? Um, well, believe me when I say like being being a good musician here really doesn't matter. <laughs> like there are so many high level right. musicians here. It's insane. <laughs> um, it's, it's ridiculous how good some people are. A lot of people are like, it's, I've never seen anything like it. And, and the deeper you go, the more people that you meet and the deeper you go and you see the underside and the, the small little scenes that are down here, it's like, mind-boggling the level of musicianship and creativity that's going on here so what and, does that do to you when you see this when you when you decide oh i'll go to nashville and try to make it <laughs> and then all of a sudden you look around and every place like crazy. well but but i'm not i didn't move to nashville to like make it as a country singer right so like that was that's what a lot of people moved to nashville for so immediately i was in a different situation i wasn't sitting here trying to get country radio hits so I was, tr I was trying to, you know, play guitar and get to know people and make records. And I had records to make when I moved down here, I was in the middle of like four projects. And so I had to find, you know, I had to find a horn section the week after I moved to town. So, you know, I happened to go to the Ryman and see what I thought was the greatest horn section I'd ever seen. And I just, I phoned them and they were like, yeah, cool. When, where's your studio? And I didn't even have a studio. I was just like, I recorded them in my bedroom. And they didn't care. They just showed up and played their ass off and then went to the next session. So, you know, that's what it was like. And I, and it was refreshing and it was like less of an ordeal to get people to come to a session. And, uh, it was just, everybody was doing it. And, uh, so, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all easy like that, but there was that side of it where it was like, I had work still, um, you know, left over from, from Vancouver and I had this way to meet people. That's how I met a, a good chunk of the, of my initial crop of friends who I'm still friends with here. So at this point, how much, when you moved to Nashville, how much are you thinking about your solo career? Uh, as much as I ever do, which is like, I want it to be engaging. I want it to be fun. I don't want it to be stressful. I don't want to rely on it to make a living. I don't want to be on tour 200 days a year. Um, so none of that has changed. Like basically I want to be, I want to be able to be as creative as I possibly can and not really have to rely on it to um, make ends meet. So it's not like a stressful thing. Um, it's never easy. And you know, the, the, the act of making the record is that's the fun part. And then like all the, the lead up and like getting it made and like, paying for the vinyl and like all that stuff is like really hard. That's the hard part, you know? And then, but the, the creating it is super easy. You know, I wish I had 
a team of 10 people to do all the other stuff, but I don't. So it's just like, you know, it's a, all that stuff is a bit of a grind. Um, but, but it's fun and it's interesting. And in the, and in the end, it's all about just making, making music that I'm proud of. And, and so that's basically always just been the same. I've never really wanted to, um, take it any, any further than that. But is it different though to say I don't want to be I didn't want to be on the road for two hundred days a year, but you'll be going hundred and twenty days with another band and another eighty days with Matt Anderson or like is there a difference between the two? Big difference, yeah. I'll cause I mean for if I'm going on tour for my own thing, it's just like a an avalanche of details that I have that I'm responsible for. There was there was like when I was touring with both Matt and birds of chicago i didn't even know where i was going half the time i would just go to the airport and they'd be like where are you heading and i wouldn't even know i'd have to look at like it was that crazy where i didn't even have any clue where i was going so that that's a huge difference to me is just like i would just show up at the airport i'd look at my phone to see where i was flying to i'd get there somebody would pick me up and i'd just sit in the van until we got to the gig and goof around with my friends and do a sound check and then go to the hotel and then do the same thing the next day. And I didn't have to think about anything. And so it was way easier. And same with Matt. I mean, you know, it was a little, I had a slightly different role with Matt um, where I was a bit more responsible for the musical side of things uh, cause it was a big band, but really, I mean, after a few gigs that band sort of took care of itself and, and um, uh, but it was, yeah, it was a, big band so it was it was not as easy as birds of chicago which was just a three-piece basically uh but yeah in both those situations i didn't have to worry about any details so that's a huge difference so right now i'm working on it on a tour to bring my to you know play my stuff with uh my band for i think it's 10 dates or something and it's just like an almost an insurmountable amount of work just like putting that together and dealing with the logistics and just, you know, everyone's coming from different places and just, especially now with COVID too, and everyone's sort of freaking out and some people aren't sure if the gigs are happening and nobody wants to travel. Of course, like that makes it way more stressful now too. Um, is that in the States or is it in Canada? More in Canada these days. In the States, basically nobody cares about COVID anymore. They're just like... Sorry, no, I meant your tour. Is that the 10-day tour? Oh, my tour is, my tour is Canada. Yeah, it's like, it, and it's specifically western canada like i might be in i might come to ontario but at this point i don't think i will so it'll just be yeah it'll be bc alberta saskatchewan manitoba that's it i mean it's crazy because right now and i'm talking end of january or middle to end of january and i look around and basically ontario there's no live gigs i don't think there is in quebec i think there are some out west but you know in the states it's like I've I've noticed that a few gigs are getting canceled in California, but for the most part, it seems like like th- there's oh, no pandemic. Canceled. Yeah, 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 and it's been like that almost the whole time. Like there was probably three months where things were really slow, and then everyone was just like, "Screw this, man! We're we're going back." And so they just started going back on tour and going to gigs and not caring and that's just what happened and that i mean that's why that's part of the reason why covid got so out of control 
And, but that's just, you know, it's just the way it is down here. And so, and now, I mean, the only thing that's happening now that's kiboshing that is that almost every band is getting COVID themselves. And so they're having to cancel, right? Mm-hmm. And and then they'll go out on tour and, the, and like the drum tech will get COVID. And so the whole tour has to go home because they've all been exposed. So that's happening like to everybody that I know. And I'm actually like, I hardly know anyone that hasn't had COVID now in Nashville. Like I'm one of the few, I probably know five people now that haven't had it. And uh, so it's just everywhere and everybody's getting it. And it's exactly what they said. It's just like at some point, everyone's going to get it. And that's what's happening now. And um, but really all it means is like tours are coming home for 10 days and then they're just going back at it. They're just rescheduling stuff. Um, So I don't know. I mean, Canada obviously takes it way more seriously. It's bad in Canada right now, too. So a lot of things are canceled in that regard. Um, It's been devastating. I know not having the festivals going on. And so it'll I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that those will happen this year, but at this point, I'm sure all the festival people are are a little freaked out again, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, who knows exactly? I, you know, in some ways, I don't I don't know if if it's any worse in Canada, except that it in the states they don't seem to care. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, the numbers are not great in the states either, and certainly certain certain states are even worse than others, but. Yeah. They just don't seem to like. They don't seem to care. They just want to keep going, which is, yeah. you know, in in one way, you think, well, maybe that makes more sense. Um, during yeah, the pan- I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, it's difficult, but I can imagine as a touring musician, as a musician who who makes you know part of your living as making music in front of people, it must be frustrating as hell. Oh yeah, you know, like I had a tour that was scheduled for uh, May of. 2020 that obviously like when I came home in March I actually thought that we'd be touring by May again so I kept that tour going as long as I could and then like end of March I realized that wasn't going to happen so we canceled it and rescheduled it which was a nightmare because it was a multi-artist tour that I was sort of responsible for for um for that time and then we flipped it into the same time of 2021 thinking oh well there's no way that it, we're still going to be hanging on to this crap by then and then sure enough you know come i don't know when i canceled that one but it was probably in january or february of of 2021 and so that's pretty disheartening you know when you put in all that work cancel it and then you put in that much work again rescheduling it and then canceling that i just i barely want to do it anymore and then you know i put my own tour together and then now thinking like april 2022 there's no way that that's going to be a problem and now it's like I'm three months out from it, not knowing. And it's, it's, yeah, it's brutal. So I don't know. I mean, if that one falls apart, I'll probably just never tour again. <laughs> Yikes. Um, okay. But the other thing is that this year, if I'm, if I understand this correctly, you're releasing three albums. Yeah. So you've been very busy during the pandemic. Tell me about the three albums. Yeah. Well, so, so when I, when I came home, I also like not only did all the touring I was doing get canceled, but all all these recording projects that I had going um, a couple of the main ones at the time were I was supposed to make a record for cat dancer and I was supposed to make a record for John Wart Hannum, both artists that I'd worked with before and really liked and really wanted to make these records. And um, uh, we had to cancel both of them. John was going to come to Nashville to make his record and cat. I think we were making it in Vancouver and 
obviously both of them just went away. And so I started, uh, well, around that time, like I realized I had to make money. And so uh, I was talking to Gary Craig in Toronto, the drummer, and he was saying, well, you know, I've been working on my recording setup quite a bit and sort of tweaking that and getting it so that I'm pretty happy with the drum sounds. And so we started talking more about that. And, and I, and he has this basement in his, he's in a townhouse over on the East end and of Toronto. And, and he, you know, has really uh, accommodating neighbors that let him play drums during the day. And we kind of figured this thing out where, where we could probably have this system set up where he could, uh, especially if it wasn't all the time, if it was like certain days of the week, if it was kind of scheduled that he could work, you know, and not have to go to a studio and have a, a decent sounding setup at his place. And then uh, I've got a friend in Vancouver, Jeremy Holmes on, on bass that, um, you know, bass, bass is different because it's not that hard to record it. So I just had to get him up and running and he, bought a couple things like a microphone and a preamp and he was pretty much there. Uh, we, and then, and then there was like this huge period of time where we had to figure out how to do it because it's not easy and it's not as straight ahead as you would think there's, um, complications at every step of the way. And so we had to overcome those, but basically we came up with the system of that. We started calling the hen house express where we would, we would, um, work with artists, on a weekly basis and they would they would send us their track of a song and we would form the song around them um, and they would send it to us on a sunday we would have a zoom which everybody got a kick out of because it was sort of fun to like hang out and talk to the musicians and it became a thing and we would just like boom one after the other we were just doing this all the time and uh so so Gary would record on a Monday or a Monday and a Tuesday, basically. And then Jeremy would record on Wednesday. Um, I would get tracks on Thursday and record. And then I'd mix on Friday, Saturday. And by Saturday afternoon, the songs would be mixed, like finished and mixed. And so that was what we were kind of selling. And it became a thing that basically got, it got, I don't, I can't speak for the other guys, but it got me through COVID both financially and like emotionally, because <laughs> I had something to do. Wow. Uh, but we got good enough with it and I got confident enough with it where I wanted to get those jobs back working with Kat and, and John. And I convinced them that they should do it that way. And so we did that and it worked really well. And, um, and I was confident enough to want to do it with my own music. And I had all this stuff that I just felt like um, I was never going to get around to record if I didn't just get it done. I just saw this golden opportunity. It was like, I'm in the studio constantly. I've got nowhere to go. I've got nothing else to do. I might as well just like make all this music. And I had this, um, instrumental record that I had, I'd kind of written it like quite a while ago, seven or eight years ago, but I just never had the time or the interest to do it. And, uh, so that's what I did. I just start. I, I started co-writing a bunch with Matt Pattershock in Alberta. Uh, we enjoyed working together and we've, done lots of stuff over the years together and we work well together. So we wrote a bunch of songs together. I had some kicking around and we, I just like, as we were doing these songs for other people, I would get Gary and Jeremy to work on songs for me. Um, and that's what we did. They just, and we just kept going. And so then we had, I had enough material for two albums of like songs that I'd 
songs that I'd written myself or with Matt. There's like two albums worth. And then I had this instrumental album. And so I finished that as well. And uh, so that's what it is. So there's the first record is Gone Long Gone. And that's that's coming out in March. And uh, that's all original songs except for one one song by the faces and what song then the second album uh it's called ooh la la oh i love that song sure yeah that's a great song yeah um so that's the first album and then the second album is all instrumental pedal steel uh kind of psychedelic trippy weird music um (laughs) and i'm excited about that one too that was really fun to make we sort of did that differently that's not gary on drums it's a guy named jay belleros in la the other thing the pandemic did was like it opened up the possibility to work with people affordably that that um, were also working from home and I could phone them and just say, hey, do you want to do this? And so that's how I ended up working with Jay Belleros, who's one of my favorite drummers. And so he's on that record, the middle one. And then the third one is the other 10 or whatever songs from um, the more original one, although that one I sort of I sort of grouped together uh, more like there's a couple of traditional songs and a couple of covers. I sort of put all those onto one album. So, so the first one's more original. The third one's more covers and trad stuff. And the middle one is like a crazy psychedelic romp. So are you constantly writing? Does writing just, is that something that is? No, no. I, I mean, I am sort of like, I don't consider that I was writing today, but really I was like before I was talking to you, I was sitting here playing pedal steel and sort of working on a thing. So, I mean, I guess that's writing sort of, uh, that's what that I don't sit down to write songs or anything, but I'll sit down and play my instrument and do stuff like that for quite a while every day. And so, yeah, I don't really think of it as writing. I know some people like sit down with the intention to like write a song or whatever. I don't really do that, I guess. But um, if there's a project going that I feel like I need to write material for, then I'll actually sit down and like spend the time like dedicated to to writing. Yeah. But for the most part, I'm just like playing my instrument. So just, just to be, be clear. So when you did this Henhouse Express, um, when Gary lays down the track, is there a rhythm track that he's following? Is that how does that work? Well, yeah, so Gary has the hardest job. So so here's how it works. Like they we we required people to use a click track, right, which is okay. funny because I had never used a click track in like in years. <laughs> I have never used a click track. I just I don't like them. Uh, you don't like them because it's unnatural or is it because some most I just don't like being tied down to a tempo I just I believe that people are have have whatever meter they're going on going on in their bodies and their minds is cool and that needs to be embraced and and so if somebody's playing faster then you speed up and you match them there and and that's what happens and all, most of the music that I like was recorded that way where there's no click tracks. And, you know, if you put on a song by the band and you clock the tempo at the beginning and then you clock the tempo at the end, it's like 10 BPMs different. Like it's wild. Clearly they weren't playing to a click track and there's nothing wrong with that, that song, right. you know? Um, so I just wasn't into it at all, but tr- 
but forensically tracking a song like we're doing with Henhouse Express, you have to have a click track because it's a it's a nightmare to try and put it together if you don't because partly because we're dealing with you know people that may just be semi pro or just like doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. We, there was a lot of people like that that weren't really professional musicians and and their time might not be very good and you know they may feel it one way but the way that it comes out when they play it was not solid so for the most part what would happen is they would do a track of they so they have to just like totally suspend disbelief and record their vocals and like a guitar or a piano something simple and then for the most part, we would get the, those tracks and I would replace their guitar with just me playing a rhythm guitar to a click track still with nothing else. And then uh, Gary would get that and he would have to, he has to play drums to that with some discussion about, oh, well, this part will be cool if we did this. And like, we talk it through. Right. But he, basically, he has to play without hearing anything that's going on. So he has the hardest job, for sure. Uh, Jeremy, when he plays bass, he's got drums to groove to, so he's okay. Um, and, you know, frankly, like, bass players are used to doing that all the time, like, just playing to a to a, uh, a scratch track and a drum track. That's not unusual for a bass player. So Jeremy was probably not out of his element really much. Um but then I would get these beautiful canvases to paint on that were solid and, you know, they may not have been as rough around the edges or as quite as creative as we would have been had we been in the same room together. But they had their own charm in different ways. And I liked the I got to really like the process. And I, I don't I didn't care about the click track tying us down as much. I got to kind of like the click track. I mean, would that um, would that now be part of the thing that you do even in person or not? No. Okay. No. No, it'll be gone pretty soon. But and I've never had a problem. Like I can all, I can play to a click track till the cows come home. It's just I, I don't have a problem doing that really. So um it wasn't like difficult for me to do that, but it's just it's kind of stifling creatively just to be locked in um so yeah i mean yeah gary had the hardest job jeremy had a pretty normal bass player job and i had a great job you know (laughs) i i i I could do anything with those tracks and there was no time constraints i could spend as much time as i wanted getting crazy weird like there's a lot of pretty creative guitar stuff going on on a lot of those things that nobody will ever hear you know and that's fine too like it doesn't that doesn't bother me but i mean there's stuff that i labored over for hours that there's no way i would have spent that much time <laughs> if i was in a studio or if i was just like working on somebody's record i would tinker with my guitar sound for like six hours sometimes just because like what else am i gonna do and i just did it you know so it was actually I learned a lot. I experimented a lot. All those things happened that that I wasn't expecting. Another thing that you did during the pandemic, but even started before the pandemic, was your own podcast. Tell me about yeah. 
that and how it started? Because I think we almost started around the same time. I started in 2016. I can't remember when I it was like 2015 or 2016. Somewhere close, I yeah. remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember looking at you listening, God, he gets all the people I can't get. But anyway, so <laughs> but what made you start the podcast? Well, I, I mean, in 2016, podcasts weren't what they are now, which is like everyone has a podcast. And so I don't think there's any way I would start one now. But, but now that mine's going, it's like, it's pretty easy for me to keep it going. So I'm just going to keep it going. But, but at that point, um, I was already in Nashville. And I'd been listening to, you know, a big one for me was listening to Mark Marin, um, the WTF podcast. Yeah. And I liked him and I liked his vibe. And I liked how he just kind of hung out and shot the shit with people. I thought it was cool. But he would have musicians on and it would always bug me because he'd never ask them like the really musician-y kinds <laughs> of questions that I wanted to hear, you know? So uh, that for me was I probably the biggest reason that I wanted to do it. I And because I started thinking like, oh, well, I kind of know Bill Frizzell and I kind of know this person and that person. And I, I'm sure if I asked them, they'd probably do it. And so sure enough, I, I just started doing it and and I didn't really know what I was doing but it doesn't matter like that's the beauty of podcasting <laughs> there's like you know you just it's pretty loose right yes. there's no production value that you have to that you have to stand up to I want mine to sound good but there's no policing of it or anything like that it's just you do it and you put it out there and if people dig it then they dig it and if they don't then you know you won't get any listeners <laughs> um but that was the reason that I wanted to do it and I wanted it to be long and I wanted to, I wanted to talk to people about making records basically is all it was. And that hasn't changed. Like I've sort of kept the, the original intent. I guess the only thing that's changed is sometimes it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, sometimes it's a struggle to get enough art to get enough people to do it. During COVID, it was bananas. Like I could get anyone to do it. Um, but but it's also a difficult it's... time. What I found was it's kind of difficult, and maybe more so lately, because um, musicians aren't doing what they want to do. And I I had a few people who said, "No, I'm not interested in doing it because I, I'm really depressed, or you know, I'm not doing mm-hmm. you know." And I get that, and it seems silly yeah. to talk about what you do when you're not really doing it, but. But you're right. I mean, there there have been other opportunities that that have come my way because people are not doing; they're not on tour. Yeah. What have you gotten out of the doing it personally? What have What has it given you? Fabulous wealth. <laughs> oh, basically, like, we better talk then. <laughs> no, that's it, it. Definitely has not done that. Um, I it's it's just been a blast. I've I've loved doing it you know like I would never have thought that I would sit down with Dwayne Eddy in my in my house and have him talk for four and a half hours about like crazy putting guitar amps in oil drums down in Texas and things like that it's like are you kidding me this is bananas that he was here in my house talk so like just hearing stories and being engaged in these stories of all these people from all kinds of music has been such a great experience and 
there's been so many of them now that I don't remember a lot of the specifics, you know, like, like I don't remember the specific stories from the first season that people may have told me, but I remember the overall arc of the conversation. And I do remember some of the stories and, you know, a lot of that stuff has, I've learned from whether it's a technical thing or whether it's a spiritual thing or whether it's a musical idea or whatever, or, a or just a, a life lesson in there somewhere there's been all kinds of stuff and i i you know i'm i'm kind of an antisocial person like i don't really i don't go out of my way to socialize that much i never really have and so it's sort of become a like my social life as well not not really like i have another kind of social life that's more normal but being able to speak to somebody for a couple hours or whatever it is and you know, some of them are short, but a lot of them go on. And for me, it's just, it's a way to engage with humans in a, that I'm interested in. You know, I'm legitimately, I wouldn't have them on my show if I wasn't interested in what they had to talk about. And so it's easy. I don't know if you find that, but like I, I, I research and stuff, but for the most part, I know enough about the person to not really have to research that much it still makes me nervous just because I'm sort of antisocial like I'll get really worked up about an interview before I do it but but it's once it's going it's like 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 I said with Dwayne Eddy it's like I wasn't planning on him being there for four and a half hours but I basically couldn't shut the guy up which is <laughs> which is amazing, amazing. Yeah. yeah and you know people are generous and people like talking about music and stuff and if you can ask them questions that they are engaged in or that might be an unusual question that only a musician would know or something they're immediately like oh well this is this is not going to be uh, an interview where they don't know anything about you right you know which happens all the yeah. time not all the time but enough times where it's like people are wary about that mm -hmm. you know there's been some where they don't know for the most part like when i started doing them it was all people that i'd worked with you know whether it's in a sm very small ways i'd worked with bill frizzell and um, bigger ways with people like john hammond where i had a personal relationship with them and stuff and they knew me but there was some people that didn't know me and the process is interesting where you don't know the person and they don't know you and they don't know what your vibe is and they don't know how much you know and you know, like somebody like Mark Rebo, when I interviewed him, was very guarded at first because he just thought it was going to be another interview where he was just going to get mad and hang up the phone, <laughs> which is what most of his interviews are. But then he was another guy like I just like basically couldn't shut him up by the end. So, you know, it, for me, it's just I, it's all interesting and fun. So it's the it's the with the podcast, it the the grind is like the the back end of it, like putting the show together and and you know going through it and pu pulling a few things out here and there and adding the music in like i put music in mine and stuff that's the grind that's where where it's like oh yeah yeah i've got to do that with 25 episodes oh my god that's going to be so much work and you yeah, know yeah. if i can afford it if i if i've made enough donations that month i'll hire somebody to do it if i haven't then i sit there and do it myself and it's just that is like that's the part that's no fun at all is like just dealing with getting it up there. If I could just do the thing and then, and then hand it off to somebody, that would be amazing. 
<laughs> but but it is an experience. It's an amazing experience. It's funny you said about being nervous. I always get nervous because I never know where it's gonna, how it's gonna turn out. Yeah. And oftentimes I know within the first few minutes that I think, oh, this is gonna be good. Right. You know, I mean, they're not all great, but I, yeah. there's a level of comfort. Um, and the being the ant- talking about antisocial. I mean, I think it's a different kind of social interaction, and especially during. Um, the pandemic. I mean, you know, people would be saying how lonely they were, and every week I was talking to somebody new, and mm-hmm. and usually somebody who I was very interested. And in, I thought, I don't really feel lonely. I feel really lucky that I've been able to, mm-hmm. to talk to people who I'm interested in, yep. you know, on a weekly basis, and often people I don't know. So, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I do get nervous. I, I think you're, you get to a point where you can ask questions that you might not if you were just sitting next to them having coffee in in some ways which makes it interesting as well yeah they're engaged in a different way because it's like yeah because you're you know ideally i do mine in person but i'll do them in uh, during covid i did them all all over zoom and i kind of got to like the zoom thing even better than in person but then i started going back to doing them in person i was like oh yeah it's actually (laughs) it's actually better (laughs) yeah because i mean there's a different thing that you read that person i mean even though i'm looking at you on video it's not the same as being in the same room as you exactly yeah yeah and sometimes you know like depending on the person's internet connection too that can cause a really a really like jarring delay in that conversation that feels unnatural and it makes people uncomfortable so yeah. that was always the that was always the trick for me was trying to i would try and pick times of the day where there where the internet wouldn't be clogged with people um, zooming, you know, because you know, if you pick prime time hours, the internet's a little slower in some cities, and and so I wanted to pick fast internet because that, um, yeah, that it's tough. Delay is it's very frustrating. We don't we don't seem to have that delay at all in on this Zoom. No. But sometimes, sometimes it's there. You know, it's like you ask a question, and then there's like two seconds before it gets to them, and that's like pretty. Yeah, it's pretty. Um, it's a stilted conversation that way. Yeah, because it's, it's awkward. Because yeah, you're constantly trying to figure out when to cut in, when to say something, when not yeah. to say something. Yeah. Um, Steve, thank you so much for doing this. I, You know, as I said, many years ago in Vancouver, I got a chance to work with you and the Sojourners. And that was a huge highlight for me. Um, we had spent the day um, shooting videos with Leon and Eric Bibb, which was amazing. Oh, but wow, it was a cool. really long day. And yep. then we were all tired, and you guys came in around six thirty or seven. And something about the energy that you guys brought was just unbelievable. I, it's something I'll never forget because we were really tired. And and you guys that was at just, the was that the, was that at the arts club? Is that where we did that? Oh, I can't remember the place. It was Granville. I think it was Island. down in Granville Island Arts Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then um, and that video, just, I I saw it recently. And I'm really, it's like one of my favorite guitar sounds I've ever had, like for, <laughs> on a live video. I think it sounds awesome. Yeah. No, <laughs> it was amazing. So, so myself. <laughs> no, but the performance is unbelievable. And that energy that you guys brought, you know, it was like, we were so grateful because we were so tired. And yeah. all of a sudden, you, as soon as you guys walked in, it was a, not, you know, it was just like a brand new day. And, and it was a great performance that I, I still, I still love watching that video and, so it was cool. a great pleasure to work with you, and it's, I thank never you. really got a chance to sit down and talk to you. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And and let me finish off by asking you, so that kid who didn't have a plan, 
who decided to pursue music and and you know you've gone and you've done a lot of different things and you continue to do a lot of different things how do you summarize your musical journey well i've never really thought about summarizing it i mean it's it's um i i think early on it was just a matter of saying yes to everything and then it became a matter of just like filtering that out where where i started being more selective i guess and all those decisions have just led me through this path that's been totally unpredictable and you know for whether that's good or bad for some people that would drive them absolutely crazy being having such an unpredictable life <laughs> uh for me it's you know there's ups and downs of that there's there's a definitely a good freeing side and there's a terrified side at the same time <laughs> and uh you know i i just imagine that this is the the path that i will lead the rest of my life and um i'm trying to get more comfortable with it as i go well said well i'm looking forward to hearing your next three albums coming out this year <laughs> awesome yeah looking forward to putting them out and hopefully get up to ontario one of these days i don't know i i had Four different gigs booked there over the last two years and none of them have panned out so we'll see what happens well hopefully it does happen and i look forward to seeing you again. all right cool yeah thank you all right